0: Father, we look to you, we look to you for grace, we look to you for ears that hear and hearts that understand and turn to you and are healed, made new. Help us do that this morning in the word, in song, in the liturgy, at the table. Help us do this in Jesus, amen. Please be seated. It's hard to believe, but it was a year ago, this month, that I preached my first sermon as the new rector for this church. Wow. And uh, thank you. It was, uh, it was actually Pentecost Sunday. It was actually the first sermon I preached, which was at the end of, end of May last year. But yeah, a year's passed. It's been a good year. And during this year, a question has been forming in me, presenting itself to me, and I haven't shared this question with you explicitly, although I've been trying to answer it pretty much this whole year through the sermons I've been preaching and through prayer, through a life together, and so I thought, yeah, it's time to share the question with you, (laughs) and it's not going to be a big surprise uh, as you see this question. These phrases are phrases I've used time and again, Uh, but they're just together in, in the form of a question that I've been trying to ask. answer. And it's this. What does it mean to live in Christ, in his new humanity, in greater Boston, to the glory of God? What does that mean? What's the answer to that question? That's a huge question. You don't answer that in an afternoon that takes weeks, really, years, decades to really answer. The church has been trying to answer that question for 2,000 years. What does it mean to live? Not just survive, but truly live. To be alive. What does that mean in the fullest sense of that word? To flourish. It's a buzzword these days. What does that look like? Jesus said, he said, I came to give you life, life to the full, abundant life, overflowing life. What does that look like? What does it look like to live and to live in Christ? It's a huge phrase in the Bible. And that's a preposition that includes a whole bunch of other prepositions. In Christ entails for Christ. By Christ, with Christ, like Christ, participating in his new humanity, right? The, the human nature he, he took on and made new. He took it on at Christmas. He lived in this flesh, our flesh, our humanity, as he loved people, as he trusted and obeyed his father, on this planet, in this flesh and blood, when he actually showed us what it meant to be truly human. He was really the first true human on the planet, living the way we were created to be. And he takes this humanity of ours, and he takes it, he doesn't abandon it, he takes it, he keeps it, and he takes it through cross and resurrection, all the way to the Father's right hand. So right now he's living in this new humanity in the glorious presence of his Father in the Spirit. What does it look like for us to participate in that new humanity, not in heaven, but here on earth, in this geography, in greater Boston? With all the the challenges and the gifts and the opportunities this geography gives us, this age we live in, What does that look like? Keeping in mind, in greater Boston also entails for greater Boston, for the good of this city, for the welfare of this city we're in. God loves the world, and therefore he loves greater Boston and the people of greater Boston. This city, this culture, with all that's messed up and with all that's good and Great about it. And how do we do all of this without just promoting ourselves and our great accomplishments? Instead, promoting God and His accomplishments. In other words, how do we do all this to the glory of God? That's a big question. <laughs> it takes a lot of discernment as we read the scriptures, as we get to know greater Boston in this age and all that entails. It requires a lot from us. It requires our whole selves, each of us individually and collectively. And of course, most of all, it requires the grace of God in us and over us, again and again. Like the grace we received at our baptism when by water and the Spirit, God plunged us into Jesus. For months now, I've been calling us to remember the meaning of our baptism. I put the font back there for this very purpose, so you'd pass through those waters every time and remember the meaning of your baptism. To ask the Holy Spirit for a fresh portion, a fresh dose of the meaning of your baptism. This, of course, goes all the way back to our series on the Holy Spirit we started with on that Pentecost Sunday. That was the first series we got into when we asked, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And one of the answers was, he is the Spirit of Jesus who shares that new, redeemed, adopted humanity of Jesus with us, enables us to participate in that. That's one of the main things he does. He plunges us into it, soaks us with it, fills us with that humanity of Jesus. And it's a humanity that knows Sabbath rest. That was the next series we looked at. A rest that ambitious, driven, high achieving, very successful, Greater Boston desperately needs. That's many times overworked, overworked, overstressed. That's not an expression of the new humanity. That needs the new humanity, big time. So we looked at Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath, who gives us this rest, he says. Rest from overwork." relief from burdens, refreshment for life. He says, come to me, and I'm going to give you this rest, but come to me and learn from me. You don't just come to Jesus for a little bit and then take off. you got to hang around and learn from him. Pick up his book in the spirit and learn about this rest. He gives us rest for our souls. The rest of this new humanity that's delivered from these burdens of sin and guilt and death. A new, redeemed, adopted humanity that is finally at home with Jesus in the embrace of the Father. And a humanity that's also radically hospitable. That was the next series we looked at. We looked, at how the, the, we looked at the radical, beautiful hospitality of Jesus, the way he welcomed people that nobody else was welcoming. He welcomed the morally questionable, the sick, the neglected, the vulnerable. He welcomed them and he healed them. He forgave them. He ate with them, befriended them, gave them good news, showed them a new way of being in the world, his way of being in the world. And then we looked at how when Christians imitated this, participated, really, in this humanity, when we welcomed one another as Christ welcomed us, when we cared for the most vulnerable amongst us in society, how that marked out Christians in history, a new kind of different kind, of, weird kind of race, really is how people saw them at first. But eventually, over time, gave rise to things like hospitals, which we see a ton of here in Boston. Gave rise to things eventually like universal human rights. That has roots in Jewish and Christian uh, faith. All kinds of other humanitarian care. That's what happened. That's what gave rise. That came about when Christians started participating in this new humanity of Christ. And when we do that in our own day, that is a powerful, compelling thing, a witness to this new humanity of Christ. So with that year in review, of course, these are things we need to come back to again and again. I hope you can see there's more than one way to answer this question. We've got to come at it different angles. For example, this morning we heard Romans 6. We heard from Paul in his letter to the Roman church, chapter 6, where one really starts to answer this question, where it all begins, where Christians begin to answer this question. Pete touched on this passage a bit during the vigil, and today I'm going to go a little deeper into it. We started looking at Romans before Lent, then we took a break, we We fasted from Romans during Lent, and now it's time to feast on Romans for a few weeks uh, as we get into Romans chapter six. And what we see here again is how Paul, Paul puts forward how we start to do this with our imagination. That's where it starts. That's where things go wrong (laughs) in our imaginations, and that's where they also go right. So it's a contested area in our humanity. So on a first reading, though, you read this and you read some of this and you're thinking, man, Paul, maybe this is a little too imaginative. Paul, maybe you're a little too optimistic here about the human condition, maybe even delusional. For he says this in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This is a strong language, this isn't just a suggestion. Paul's just not saying, hey, you know, maybe you might want to think about doing this. You must. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Imagine yourself in this way. Think about yourself in this way. Really? <laughs> Who but Jesus can think this way about themselves and be honest? Who can say, you know what, sin, I'm dead to? I no longer have any connection to sin anymore. Now it's only and always I'm alive to God. Who can say that without lying to themselves? Well, only those, I think, who are in Jesus. I didn't finish sentence, of course, the full sentence reads, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, not in yourselves, but in Christ Jesus. That makes all the difference, whether you're lying to yourself or not. Only Jesus was ever truly dead to sin and alive to God. And only those who live in him who identify with him, who have their identity in him, can possibly consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God. Earlier in the chapter, Paul wrote, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, so first notice there, baptism is being baptized into Jesus, but being plunged into him by water in the spirit. And that means whatever is true of him becomes true for you. That's how baptism works. So do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were therefore baptized into his death? So whatever is true about him and his death is true for us. And then Paul says, in his death, just want to slow down here. In his death, the old self was, past tense, crucified with him. The old Adam, the old you, the old Dave, there with Jesus, was crucified with him. The old self, the sinful self, the false self was crucified with Jesus. That's what happened when Jesus said, It is finished. And our baptism puts us into that, soaks us with that, makes that true for us. But we don't stop with just dying. <laughs> But if we died with Christ, Paul says, we believe that we will also live with him. He doesn't say this as much in this section about the true self rising with Christ. He says that in other passages. But the cross is about the old self dying there with Christ. And the resurrection with Jesus is the new self rising with him. The new Adam, the new Eve, the new you, the new me, rising with Christ in his resurrection The new self that's dead to sin and alive to God rose there with Christ. Paul goes on. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, therefore, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This means, as Christians, we get a new identity. Which is good news for our day, right? In our age, we live in an age where everyone experiences an identity crisis to some degree. That's what it means to live in this secular age we live in. That's one of the main points that Taylor makes in his book, A Secular Age, we live in an age when, as I mentioned before, this, this uh, quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, he said, we are condemned every moment to reinvent ourselves. That's the kind of age we live in. That's what, puts, that's what puts, is put upon us, which leaves each of us at our core very fragile and unstable and insecure when you talk to people, when you get right down to what's going on in their heart of hearts. That's what you find. So what good news then to be given this identity from Jesus that is as solid as a rock because it's based in the Lord, our rock, our eternal rock. We can of it. We can of our identity in Christ What Shakespeare said of love, it alters not with brief hours or weeks, but bears out even to the edge of doom. And this identity is the true you. A mentor of mine used to tell me, you are most yourself when you are most in Christ. If there's something you hear this morning, I hope you hear that. You are most yourself when you are most in Christ. Last time I I talked about this, I might not have been clear enough on that point that Jesus, he didn't just come in our flesh and die and rise in our flesh to make us a zero. He came, yes, to bring us to death, First, to bring death to the old self, but only to rise the new self, the true self that he made you and created you, redeemed you to be alive, alive to God, to the giver of life who gives you your true self. Consider yourselves in these ways. Imagine yourselves in these ways, Paul says, present yourself to God as someone who has already been brought from death to life in Christ. Think about yourself in this way. That's not easy. That takes time. That is a hard work of the imagination. We go back to old ways of imagining ourselves as the failure, as the one who doesn't ever have enough, who lacks always, or the one who dominates, who's gotta be the best in the room all the time. That's the false self. Needs to die. Has died at the cross. But that's hard work. Most of you know I was born and raised in Canada, and not long after Ann and I got married, uh, we moved back. We moved to the U.S. and as an American citizen. But when I first came here, I was an alien, and and then I became a permanent resident. Uh, got my green card, and then finally I became a U.S. citizen, and I got the papers, and I got my passport here. I brought it in, just in case. You can take a look if you're wondering, worried, I'm legit. (laughs) You need proof, yep. One of the hardest things for me, though, to be honest, was the oath of allegiance I had to take. You don't have to take this if you're just born in America, but if you come in, <laughs> you've got to say this oath of allegiance during your naturalization ceremony. And I had to do this. I had to, quote, renounce absolutely and entirely all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign state I have been a citizen of. So for me, that's Canada. And, uh, and then it goes on and then to defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And then it takes up all these, um, you have to take up arms and it's like, and I'm very pacifist in my personal position. I don't think, I think there's a place for police and military, but yeah, that was really hard for me. That second part, um, especially, but also this, because. In Canada, you gotta you gotta know this. For a long time when Canadians are asked, what does it mean to be Canadian? Uh, it was very much defined as what they weren't. And mostly it was, what are you as a Canadian? Well, I am not an American. <laughs> so there's a little jab there, uh, maybe two Americans, but mostly Canadians just don't wanna be lumped in with, or Canadians don't wanna be lumped in <laughs> with Americans. They're their own people, they have their own identity. They don't know what it is. <laughs> But uh, they know what it's not. It's not being an American. Um, I wrote a song, actually, about this, and, uh, which is so hilarious. I, I marry an American and then become an American. Uh, pretty funny. But it's no small thing, therefore, for a Canadian to renounce their allegiance to Canada and then give it to the U.S. That's a big shift. It was a big shift in me, politically, to do that. I uh, didn't take it lightly. I wanted to be honest and sincere about it. And it was, yeah, it's been hard to me still to reimagine my new political identity as a US citizen. Uh, that's still been hard. I, I'm reminded of it every time I cross the border. Actually, I've got two passports. It's not illegal. I'm allowed to keep the Canadian one. The, the US doesn't take it from you, even though you swear this allegiance to them. Um, so I just bring out whatever one's helpful, kind of like Jason Bourne, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But it does remind me, though, as I come back into the U.S. and I bring and I show this this passport, I was like, oh, man, yeah, that's right. I'm a U.S. citizen. It takes time. Well, there's some similarities here in our life with Christ, in our life in Christ. We've been given a new identity in Christ. We've been given a new citizenship, right? We're citizens of heaven. And we've had a naturalization ceremony, our baptism, right? Where we, or those representing us, renounced all foreign idols and declared our allegiance to God in Christ. It's not so different. Now, God doesn't give us a passport, but he gives us something better. He gives us these powerful, beautiful symbols and sacraments. That confirm all this and seal all this for us to help us also reimagine our identity in him he gives us the cross he gives us the sacraments of baptism and the, and the lord's table. I was reading something from recently from psychology today about effective images, these images, these vital symbols that go fill our imaginations and go right down into our nervous system. Things like the cross that fill our imagination with so much meaning. These, ha- these are loaded with meaning, true meaning, that also form our identities, help us form them, imagine them, both individually and collectively. So that when we see the cross, when we see the waters of baptism, when we come in, we need to be considering, reimagining who we are in Christ. Right? Who we are in Him, that we are in Him, dead to sin. In Him, we are alive to God. We are beloved children of God. We are people who have been brought from death to life. That's what these should be reminding us to. And, In Christ, in the Lord, that's Paul's most repeated phrase in the New Testament. He uses it 167 times in his letters, where he only uses in Christ, in us, another powerful truth, a handful of times, maybe five times, I think. It's led scholars to believe that much of what Paul was writing about in his letters was just a a big elaboration on the meaning of his baptism, I think that's pretty convincing, basically of what it means to live in Christ and his new humanity. Next week, we're gonna take this a step further. We're gonna look at the second half of Romans six. But this week, just keep in mind, this all begins in your imagination. How are you thinking about yourself, about each other, our community, the people of God? Are you imagining these things that Paul has highlighted? Dead to sin, alive to God, people who've been brought from death to life? If you have, that's good. But typically, we imagine other things. We have to identify that, understand that old way of thinking has been crucified, and acknowledge the truth, the true you, the true self. May it be so. Amen.